Welcome to the Plant Cunning Podcast, where we explore a relationship to plants, other people, and the mysteries of nature. Coming to you from the High Allegheny Plateau in central New York, we are your hosts, A.C. Staubel and Isaac Hill. Episode 51, The Artisan Herbalist with Bevan Cohen. Bevan is an author, herbalist, and educator in Michigan at Small House Farm. In this episode, we speak with Bevan about his new book, The Art is an Herbalist, which is a nice guidebook to making herbal products and starting an herbal business. And we talk about that about um, and about balancing making money and paying your bills with doing what you love and providing value for your community, and also balancing getting stuff done without burning out. We speak about Bevan's homestead, about um, how they press their own oil out of seeds that they grow, and seed saving, which uh, Bevan has also written a book about. Uh, we had a really good time, and Bevan's really smart and funny. And as always, if uh, you like what we're doing here, be sure to check us out on patreon.com plantcunning and give us some support. Also, uh, Liking and rating us on iTunes is always good, and sharing these with your friends also really helps us out. So thank you to all our patrons, and thank you to everybody who's listening, and I hope you enjoy the episode. Well, welcome, Bevan Cohen, to the Plant Cutting Podcast. How are you today? I'm doing wonderful. Uh, thank you so much for having me. Of course. It's a, it's a pleasure. You've written some interesting books, and uh, we're, we're excited to talk to you about, about them. Yeah. So usually our first question is, uh, how did you come to the plant path? Well, and that's a good question. I guess we'll start at the beginning. Uh, when I was a, a, a young boy, I lived with my grandmother. So I'm talking, you know, five or six, I think is when I moved in with my grandma. And we lived in a small apartment um, on the edge of town. And uh, we were lucky. We was kind of where the city meets the forest in a way. We were on the edge of town right up against what at the time was hundreds of acres of woods um now it's you know it's been developed into housing or something like that but at the time we were lucky to just all this forest and i spent a lot of time out playing in the woods you know and so i kind of grew up in these woods and, and as i got older you know so we'll fast forward to maybe 16 or so i did what a lot of you know young teenage boys would do um tai chi out in the woods and i spent a lot of time out there and that's not <laughs> what a lot of <laughs> is that not normal Oh, I don't, I don't know. <laughs> I love it. Yeah. Well, you know, so maybe maybe my path was a little uh, uh, divergent from what's what's average, but um, I did spend a lot of time out in the woods, and I, I started to harvest wintergreen berries just as as a young boy out in the woods meditating. It was the first plant that I really um, harvested for food that you know out in the woods and and got to know, and I was just immediately just awestruck with this idea that that there was food available in the woods. You know, that was just such a foreign idea. You know, I grew up, you know, you get your food from the grocery store. My grandmother prepared food at the house. I didn't, I didn't have that connection in my life until I I just happened to, to just come across these plants or these plants found me in a way. And I just, it, it altered my perspective of my reality. And that seems to be a theme is how plants have, have, have worked with me through my life is they've continued to help me alter my perspective to see the world in different ways. Um, Mm. This relationship that I've had with plants has allowed me to go to places and to to meet people and do things that I wouldn't have been able to do otherwise, you know, so we've really plants and I have developed these relationships. Wintergreen still is a plant that I work with to this day. Um, I take my children now out into the woods and we gather wintergreen together um, we've, we've really come full circle in, in that way, uh, Wintergreen and I, and it's, it's just realizing as a young boy that just in the small section of woods that I called home was so much diversity, so many different kinds of plants that offered so many different things, food and medicine and shelter, just in my little slice of the world, what kind of diversity is there in the rest of the world, right? It's just, it's, it's never ending. And it just it started this life, lifelong obsession with plants and well, really in a roundabout way, I guess that's what brings me to sit down with you guys today is this yeah. obsession with plants. So I guess that's my story in a nutshell. Yeah. 
So what do you like to do with wintergreen? Well, we, of course, brew it into tea. Um, we pick the berries when we're out in the woods walking and stuff. It's a fun snack, you know. It's one of the first plants that my children learn to identify as well. Um, so they always get excited to find them. You know, they're right now here in Michigan, they're just getting ripe. They're, they're like peak yeah. ripeness, the berries right now. Um, so we've been having fun picking them as well. But we also craft them into, you know, medicines. We make a topical um, muscle muscle and joint pain salve. And wintergreen is one of the ingredients. We harvest the leaves and use it for that. Um, so like many plants, wintergreen is one of those plants with multiple purposes, multiple offerings. Um, it offers us food as well as medicine. Yeah. I just love that flavor. Mm. Oh, me too. I love it so, so much. Okay. You know, sometimes we, I, I like to tell folks we do, I do a lot of educational programming, um, herb related as, as well as other topics. And I like to talk about wintergreen, not only because of my sentimental relationship with it, but because, you know, it's, it's accessible to so many people. So many people can find it. It's a flavor that many people enjoy. Um, and it just, yeah, it makes it just a groovy tea. Yeah. And, and where in the world are you right now with the, with the wintergreen? Oh, right now we're in central Michigan is where small house farm is located. So okay. this is, this is where wintergreen is, is popping right now. Yeah. Awesome. They have a similar climate to us in central New York, maybe a little bit warmer, Yeah. <laughs> but pretty much the same. The forests out here have a lot of wintergreen too. Yeah. You know, it, it's so nice to, to have something like that. Um, just readily accessible. Like, you know, I know a lot of people, especially when they're new on their herbal journey, uh, they like to source herbs um, through a co-op or through online, yeah. you know, sources or whatever. And that's totally cool. But to take that time to really appreciate and learn about the plants right in our own bioregion, I think that's just such mm -hmm. an important thing for people to do. As herbalists, certainly, but just as people in general, getting to understand the food and medicine that grows in your region is, it's, it's beneficial on so many levels, not only just physically, mentally and spiritually it's it's just i think one of the most powerful things that we could do for ourselves yeah for sure and and when you're actually like in the same space as a living plant that you then harvest you there's so many other things going on you know uh and you get to really have a get a feel for the plant itself and the spirit of the plant mm. absolutely when you're there in its home visiting the plant right. yeah. yeah for sure you know and you get to see the plant as as through its entire life cycle, you know, not just at that stage where we, we choose to harvest it, um, but through its its whole life, you know, um, and that, that's just pretty neat to get to to observe plants that way. Yeah, definitely. So, Bevan, how did you become an herbalist? Did you have teachers or mentors on your path or self-taught? Well, you know, a little bit of both. At, at the beginning, I was self-taught. I spent a lot of time, like I said, out in the woods. I would get a lot of books at the library and just spend time finding and identifying and learning about plants that were right with me out in the woods. Um, as I got a little bit older, I found some like-minded folks and we started a, uh, a sort of a study group, you know, where we'd pick a different herb each month and kind of study it as a group, um, come up with different projects to, to kind of move us along through our studies and report that. back That's every month. It was really fun, you know, because being out in the woods by myself, you know, you kind of get into a, a little bit of a bubble, but working with other folks they kind of came at it from different angles they had different perspectives different things that they were interested in it really it really broadened the research that we did which really helped me to see plants in a in a different way than I would have obviously just out there by myself so it really was gave me a nice strong foundation for you know a lifelong of ex, life of exploration that's really cool so when did you start um producing herbal products to, uh, to, to sell and exchange? Well, at first we started making products just for ourselves, you know, and that's something, you know, well, I've done for quite some time, you know, let's say, let's say 20 years. I don't want to date myself here, but let's say, you know, studying and using plants for, you know, a couple decades now. Um, but as far as what we do at Small House Farm, um, crafting herbal wellness products and offering them commercially, that's something that we've done since about 2013, I believe. Okay, very cool. Yeah. Um, one thing I, I noticed that is really cool is you use your own oils in some of your products, right? That you press yourself. Oh, absolutely. I think that that's very important. You know, we take the time to study the herbs and the plants and we choose them for their specific benefits and that sort of thing. Um, 
the, the oils themselves aren't just ingredients. They also come from plants and they also offer benefits. So I think that choosing, selecting certain oils um, add to the benefits of the products that we make. And then because of my insistence on having a relationship with the ingredients that we use, um, studying the plants, growing the plants, all the herbs that we use, I either grow here on our farm or we gather from the wild from right here around the area that we live. And I think it's just as, as critical that we have that same relationship with the oils. Uh, we cold press a number of the oils that we use here, sunflower and hemp seed and, and all those sorts of things. And we try to source seeds to, to press that are locally grown as well, whenever we possibly can, because I think that that's a very important element of what we do at Small House. I mean, even the beeswax that we use comes from uh, some bees that are a mile and a half away from here. It's the same bees that pollinate our garden that create oh. the wax that we use, you know? And I think that as a local business, as, as a local producer, um, whatever, whatever we want to label we want to use here, um, I think that if I'm going to be local, I need to be as local as absolutely possible. Yeah. Yeah. It makes a lot of sense. So how do you actually make the oils? What, uh, what, and what seeds do you use to make these oils? Like what kind of oils are you making? Well, we make a variety of different oils that we produce here. So sunflower is a big one that we do. We use a lot of sunflower oil, um, hemp seeds. Uh, we press a lot of hemp seeds on occasion. We've pressed some flaxseed oil, walnut oil we've done, which is pretty labor intensive. Um, throughout the years, what's that? Black walnut or uh, Carpathian walnut? We've, we've done um, English and black walnuts. And the black walnuts, like local black walnuts, which is a huge pain to do. I mean, it's very labor intensive, <laughs> yeah. you know, so it gets to the point where as much as I want to make these oils and use them in our products, I also have to think about how realistic that is. And it just, right. it's, it's far more, it's so much simpler just to use sunflower oil in so many of these situations, you know? Yeah. Um, so we do use a lot of sunflower oil, uh, but you know, the, the extraction process is very simple. We started with a hand turn um, oil press. You can buy them anywhere. It's, it's, it's Pitaba is the brand. You can get them like out of the Johnny C catalog, I think. Um, and it's a hand cranked turn screw mechanism. It's essentially just pressure that squeezes the seeds to extract the oil. And that's how we got started is I would spend sometimes late into the evening, a lot of time hand cranking, this oil press um, to extract this oil for these products. Thankfully, um, it's been a successful endeavor. We've, we've gotten a great response to it. So we've been able to scale up a little bit and we now have electric models, um, which thank goodness I wouldn't have been able to keep doing that, especially at the scale that we produce oil now, um, cranking it by hand. But so now we've got a couple of different electric presses that we use. Um, I'll still take the hand press out on the road sometimes to do demonstrations and things. But for the most part, everything's just run off these electric models. Yeah, that's always a balance to figure out like what <laughs> what actually makes sense, like the economics of your energy. Oh, yeah. And that's one of my greatest challenges is, is, is understanding what makes sense, because I always want to go all in, you know, yeah. on everything yeah. that I do. And it's just not realistic to to do that sort of thing. I, at first, you know, um, I, I can be a little stubborn, I suppose. And I didn't want to move to an electric press because I felt, oh, you know, I, I, in a way, I, I guess I, I felt that it took something away from what we were doing. Um, right. But it doesn't. I mean, give me a break. Um, <laughs> yeah. It, it, we're still making great products here. I'm just mm -hmm. able to, you know, spend some time with my kids instead of spending all day at the oil press like I used to. Right. Yeah. And you're not spending the money in and energy, embodied energy in the petroleum oil and ga gasoline used to ship uh, whatever coconut oil or sunflower mm -hmm. oil from somewhere else. Oh, sure. There's so many factors to that. You know, when you think about the pros and cons of things, like even just running an electric press, you know, oh, I could call that a con, but the amount of pros, like you just mentioned, that, that come along with just producing our own oil far outweighs that, you know. And when I thought about the amount of time that I was expending pressing all this oil, I thought, well, I, you know, I can't ever pay myself an hourly wage by any means. I can't even count the hours because I want these products to be accessible to people. Um, one thing we've always done at Small House is try to keep our price point as low as economically feasible um, just to ensure that these things are accessible to as many people as, as, as possible. Yeah, that's also an, an important balance to figure out is like how much, like paying your bills and also offering 
products to people and making them affordable that have you know, have value. Mm-hmm. How, how do you balance that for yourself? You know, it's a continuing challenge. Um, it's it's difficult as an entrepreneur because you have to wear so many hats and you have to have so many skill sets. You know, you have to be good at growing and producing, and you got to be got to be good at marketing, and you got to you know accounting and all these things. You know, I'm I'm so blessed. My wife Heather, who is an integral part of what happens here at Small House, um, is so good at all of the things that I'm really bad at. Um, you know, she's very good. She's organized. She's good with accounting. She's good with crunching numbers. Um, you know, she does a lot of our design work. She runs the website, which are all things that are not my skill sets. So, you know, I'm, I'm lucky in a way that my partner, we, we really balance each other out um, so well, but it's, it's a constant evolution. It's, it's always a learning process, always seeing what works and what doesn't work and, and, and fine tuning things. One thing that we do, we do a lot of educational programming. I'm always trying to teach folks how to do what we're doing. Um, and I always say, half jokingly, that I'll know that I've done a good job when I've put myself out of business. You know, um, when people are growing their owners, making their own products, pressing their own oils, saving their own seeds, growing their own food, when everybody's doing those things, they won't need me anymore. Mm-hmm. In the meantime, I'm here to, to teach them the skills that I have. Um, and we have the seeds and the products and the herbs available for folks that, that are interested in, in purchasing them as they learn those skills. But ultimately, at the end of the day, putting myself out of business would be, that's, that's a good day's work right there. <laughs> that's, yeah, that's awesome. Um, so you've also, one of the ways that you're teaching people how to make their own things is through writing books. And so the artisan herbalist, your book on making teas, tinctures, and oils at home is definitely an example of that. And I just really like um, the whole format of the book, I think it's beautifully written and it's really detailed yet also concise. Um, and so I guess our first question about this book is why you chose to write it. Well, you know, it was really a, a blessing. You know, New Society Publishers came to me. We were, we were talking about a couple of different projects and they suggested, they said, you know, Bevan, we would really like it if you would write this book for us. And I thought, well, this is like the moment I've been waiting for. Um, you know, in, in the past, we've done some small booklet type of things that, you know, we would give out to folks about herbs with, if they came to one of our classes or something, a little bit of a takeaway. And I, I, I found that being able to, to put this knowledge on paper, if you will, and hand it out to people was so successful because I can only be in so many places. I can only, you know, visit so many places to talk to people, but these books they can take with them um, and, and they have it for their entire life. So this opportunity to write this book, I thought this is, this is, like I said, the opportunity that I've been waiting for. And I tried to condense 20 years of experiences into this book. So, you know, we wanted to keep it concise, but it is, like you said, it's packed full of information. It's, it's all these ideas and stories and, and thoughts that I wanted to share with people. Um, because ultimately we all learn at our own speed. And I feel that the book is the perfect medium for education because you can, you can take it with you and you can refer back to it later. Um, you can flip through it at your own pace. And it's just it's such a good way to learn. That's how I learned when I was growing up um, about herbs was through the books that I read. And to this day, I have, uh, well, much to my wife's chagrin, um, uh, probably thousands of books all over the house. Um, Cause I still feel that they're one of the most valuable tools that we have. So to be able to write a book about something that means so much to me was uh, well, it's kind of, I guess we could say it's my gift to the world, but it's really the world's gift to me. Yeah. I think it's a really good book. Um, especially like, this is a great book for somebody who <clears throat> wants to get into making products and doesn't know how to do it, right? It's a good intro book, but it's also very detailed. And this is this is a great gift, I think, also. Like any of our listeners who like has some somebody who who really wants to like a younger per, younger herbalist in training, this is a great book for them. It's and mm-hmm. it, but it's good for anybody who really wants to um, get get detailed instructions on how to make all of these different herbal extractions. Mm-hmm. That was my ultimate goal, you know, as I, I wanted it to be a good introduction to, to help build a foundation to, to, to put something out in the world that I wish existed when I started my herbal journey, um, to really help get people off on the, on the right path, you know, but of course, through all of my experiences, there's, there's information in there that even people that have been studying herbs for years are definitely going to find things throughout the book 
um, new perspectives, new ideas, um, certainly information of value. So it's accessible to all people, but it really was really driven towards, you know, new herbalists, folks that are just getting out there and, and learning about all the wonders that the world has to offer. Yeah. Yeah, I definitely agree that it's for the beginner and the advanced herbalist. Um, but I do want to ask too, the title is the artisan herbalist. So what does an artisan herbalist mean to you? So an artisan, you know, is somebody that makes things and art, the crafts in small batches with their hands, with local quality ingredients, right? Um, so to me, that, that defines the beauty of what we can do as herbalists is we become artisan producers, right? We develop this relationship with our ingredients. We, we use the finest local ingredients to, to create small batches of high quality products. You know, I, I wanted to drive the point home that we weren't looking to just mass produce a bunch of commercially successful this and that. You know, we want this to be personal. Everything that we create is personal and everything that we share is personal. And the time that we spend with our plants is personal. And I think that the philosophy of the artisan, we could think about artisan cheeses and artisan bread makers and those sorts of things. And the, the offerings that they create are personal to them. They put all of their love and care into every loaf, into every cheese, using the best possible ingredients. And that was the philosophy that I wanted to, to share through the book, especially for new herbalists. It's important that we start our journey with that perspective, understanding that personal relationship with the plants and the products that we create. That makes perfect sense. Yeah, I totally can, uh, can picture the artisan herbalists at work in their apothecary. Well, AC herself is an artisan herbalist, you know, like that's one of her, one of, you know, her, her main things is making salves and tinctures and muscle rubs. And she just got back from a, like a full weekend, uh, Fair. fair festival thing <laughs> but it i think it's really important to have a lot of like especially going back to that idea of being hyper local um and sourcing the stuff yourself uh it's it, it's good to have thousands of of artisan herbalists in every community mm, yeah well definitely. i mean maybe not thousands in each community but <laughs> i think there's enough room for everybody honestly yeah right well it's there good. is if that's the beauty of it is is yeah. there is room for everybody and Maybe thousands, it sounds like a big number, but some communities are quite large and they would certainly benefit from, from thousands of people being artisan herbalists or being artisan, whatever is calling to them. You know, right. that, that philosophy is if, if we each make a, a small step towards changing that, I mean, we'll, we'll, we change the world, right? Yeah. Yeah. And it, these are also things that I think a hundred years ago, many somebody in every family would know, you know, mm. like these, er, this herbal literacy has kind of been uh, forgotten, but it's a, a very important part of being a human, I think. Oh, you got it. And, you know, especially, you know, we could say back in the day, I guess, but when we were more, you know, geographically divided, when there was more space between people, when there was less people around, um, you, most certainly every household had to have a medicine maker because that was where your medicine was going to come from. Uh, we didn't have the luxuries that we have in today's modern world, um, you know, with, with hospitals and, and ambulances and, and all these sorts of things. Um, it was critical to our survival. And as things become modernized, we could say, um, or more convenient is another word that we could use. Um, when we, we, rely on these outside sources for this information, for this knowledge, for this protection, for this healing, we lose that skill. If we, if we don't sharpen our knives, they become dull, right? And if we don't practice our skills, we lose them. And I think that that's, it's, it's so exciting right now to be in this, this cusp of, of this transitioning from one point of view to the next, where people are starting to turn back to this more localized living, turning back to the land, being more interested in where our food comes from, where our medicine comes from, understanding the bounty of nature that's accessible to all people. Um, it's, it's like an awakening. Um, it's a really exciting time to be alive, really, um, with all the challenges in the world right now, through every challenge is an opportunity. So this, some could say, is some of the most challenging times of our life. 
Um, so therefore, it also offers the most opportunities. Heck yeah. I think that's a great way to look at it. And uh, <laughs> I think if more people looked at it that way, you know, that we'd be, be in a little better of a position. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, that's what we're here for, right? And that's what's so cool right. about your podcast. Exactly. You know, you're, you're, you're broadcasting this message to so many people. And that, that's just awesome, man. Yeah, yeah, thanks. Well, yeah. So I think speaking of opportunities too, um, a lot of people are learning this herbal knowledge. They're getting excited from books like yours and they're practicing at home and then they're making this like abundance of herbal products. And they're thinking, well, maybe I could... I could give these away as gifts, or maybe I could sell them. And so I think a lot of people are like kind of ruminating about how they could make an herbal product line or something like that into a business. And I'm wondering if you could speak a little bit about to um, like to those folks who are considering it, like what does it take to run um, an herbal wellness like product line? I know you wrote a book, but you know, in short, (laughs) in short, so yeah, you know, the, the last chapter of the Artisan Herbalist is really designed to, to kind of cover some of this because I wanted to give people the tools and ideas that they need to succeed if that is the path that they were looking to take. Um, but, you know, really, well, we could say what's the cliche here is um, if you do something you love, you'll never work a day in your life. Um, and sometimes I agree with that and sometimes I don't because I know that I do <laughs> what I love and I work really hard, it seems like, you know. Um, we can easily romanticize an herbal business and we can, we can, you know, say, Oh, we're going to stop the rat race and we're going to, we're not going to go work at the office and we're going to turn to the earth. And we're going to do things. It's easy to, to see the beauty. Right. Yeah. Um, but there's also, it's, it's, it's difficult. It's hard work to make your dreams a reality, you know? So being prepared for failure, you know, even small failures, you're going to make some salves and they're not going to work out right. That's going to happen while you're learning. Right. Um, and that's how we learn. Yeah. So, right. <laughs> it, oh, it happens to all of us. Um, yeah. You know, I still, I've been practicing herbalism for 20 plus years and I still make mistakes. Sometimes I make mistakes that I've, I've made a bunch of times. So that's, with some topics, I'm a slower learner than others, you know, um, that's okay. That That's the fun of, of herbalism is trying new things, pushing our boundaries, uh, experiencing something different, and then learning from what that offers us, you know, yeah. but w- when we're starting a business, you know, we have to in some way be grounded and be anchored because ultimately we have to make a profit and we have to pay the bills. And that is sometimes neglected when we fantasize the beauty of herbalism. Um, but it's, it's, it's difficult and it's challenging and you might need a spreadsheet and you're going to have to do some accounting. Again, I say I'm blessed because of my wife, because she's very good at those things. Um, so that worked well for me, but not everybody has the luxury of, of a Heather um, like I have, mm-hmm. uh, you know, so these are skills that you have to learn as you go through it. Um, you may be great at making herbal medicine. You may not be very good at marketing your herbal medicine, right? So, so there's a multitude of skills that we have to learn to rein in or hire out or wherever it might be. So I always recommend to start small. And I recommend this for everything in life. Um, always just start small with some baby steps, do something that you enjoy. There's a very, very fine line that we have to walk here. You know, when we make our decisions based on the financial outcome of that decision, when all of our decisions are based on, is this going to turn me a profit? Um, Am I going to make money off that? We find ourselves making decisions that we wouldn't normally make, right? Um, So we got to find that fine line where we can still uphold the ethics that we believe in and the message that we believe in um, and yet do it in a way that's going to be economically sensible so we can continue to do it for years to come. So it's a balancing act, most certainly. Start small, find some plants that you love, find a thing that you love to do and just immerse yourself in it. And if you immerse yourself in something that you love, beautiful things will be born. Things that you may not even have realized, right? So sometimes we just let go a little bit, kind of let mother nature take our hand, guide us down the path. And I don't think there's any way that you can go wrong with that. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, I like that you, in your herbal business chapter, um, you encourage everybody to take time each day for self-care. And I think that's something that can be so easily overlooked when we're talking about businesses. So I really appreciated that aspect of it. 
And I'm curious if you would be willing to share some of your self-care practices that work for you. Yeah. You know, so in the book, I really tried to, like I said, help set that foundation of information that I wish existed when I started my journey. And that was certainly one of them. Um, I, I try to teach through my mistakes so other people don't have to make them. In the early days of Small House, we were very active um, as far as, as trying to sell products. And I was traveling to four to five farmer's markets a week to sell products. And in the other two days of the week, we had to make products. And it was very, very busy. But I thought, you got to do the grind. I got to get out there in front of the people. I got to get my products you know, in front of as many people as possible. Uh-huh. Um, yeah. Well, I, as you can imagine, quickly burnt myself out on that. Right. And yeah. then I came to realize that the, the, the scale of what I was doing, the more products I sold was just the more products I had to make. The more packaging yeah. that went out, the more packaging I had to buy, you know? And it was uh-huh. like, I'm running myself ragged, but was I really even making any more money than if I concentrated on just doing one or two things really well? Yeah, yeah. Right? Yeah. Uh, it was I and it, it's changed everything that we do here. You know, like I didn't come to Small House Farm to start this business to run myself ragged. I came to enjoy a slow pace of life and, and to be aware of where I'm at, enjoy my time in the woods. And I created this reality that didn't allow me to do that. So I said, I got to step back from this and reevaluate what's happening. So in this, this new 2.0, we could say, of what happens at Small House Farm, it's all about self-care, right? Mm-hmm. I take the time to be aware of where I'm at at every moment. Awareness is, is, is crucial. Meditation, you know, I mean, that could I guess, be considered cliche, but we do meditation and yoga here at Small House. Um, it's really, you know, my wife was already doing yoga and she turned me on to it. And I thought, well, I guess it doesn't hurt. But what a difference it, it makes to just slice a piece of time out just for yourself, right? Turn off the phone, focus on the moment. And it really just helps you to reevaluate what you're doing here. We brew a lot of tea. I always recommend drinking tea. And we could even, you know, if we need to think that, oh, I'm doing work, um, I'm evaluating a new tea blend, right? We could say that. Um, <laughs> but brew yourself some tea and take the time to be there in the moment. You've only got what, 50, 60, 70 years on this whole planet. You know, am I just going to run myself ragged for 10 of them? That doesn't make any sense. You know, what, what's the point of what we're doing if we're not enjoying the moment that we're in right now? We're not guaranteed any other moments. There's so much so, of the glorification of the hustle, you know, among yeah. like beauty care and herbal product line of just like getting yourself out there and, and running yourself ragged and just being like, I've got ashwagandha, who cares? <laughs> oh yeah. Yeah. You got to grind, you know, that's what they say. Oh, for sure. And you know what? I fell right into that trap right off the bat because, yeah. you know, from the way that society trained my brain to think that I always had to hustle. I always had to be producing, always produce, produce, you know? Um, and I don't want to, say that that doesn't work for some people. Everybody's different. And I don't want to say what's right or wrong, I guess, because everybody comes to the world from a different place. But in my experience, and the advice that I would give based on my experience is a a nonstop grind, you're going to wear yourself out so fast. You know, Um, I mean, I mean, just the physics of friction, I guess, would tell us that, right? Um, We can learn everything from Mother Nature, and she'll show us exactly what a grind does to anything. Um, Where is it now? Nothing. Right. right. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. It does. And that's not a sustainable business model in my eye. No, no. I, I, I mean, I experienced this with my, with my band touring around the country for years and it just, it ended up with me burnt out entirely. Hmm. <laughs> and, but you know, that's also sometimes an experience that you have to go through in order to reevaluate your life, reflect and, and uh, imagine uh, what you really want to do. I so. think you're right, Isaac. And you know what, man? Because, you know, with my kids, I'm always trying to teach my kids lessons. And sometimes I find that maybe they don't listen to me as well as that I would like. And then, you know, I have to remind myself that they have to experience it to, to, to maybe learn these lessons. And then, it, you know, it reminds myself of myself as a child. And, <laughs> you know, adults would tell me things and I would do whatever I want anyways. And I had to stumble and fall to learn that lesson, Right. Um, and I think that kind of comes back to what we're saying is that I could sit here 
and talk on your podcast for the whole rest of the time together about how the grind isn't going to be successful for all people. Um, but that doesn't mean anything until somebody experiences it for themselves, maybe. Um, sometimes you do have to go get out there. I never would have learned that lesson if I wouldn't have experienced it. And everybody's uh, experiences are a little bit different, you know, but maybe we can give ourselves some shortcuts and just yeah. cut ourselves, cut ourselves a little slack. Um, and like recognize when we're getting pulled into that like vortex of like not stopping and maybe taking that time to pause to rest and digest and like reevaluate and go back to our mission and values, you know? Yeah. Uh, you like know, we scaled down that. so much here. Like for a while we were, uh, we, a lot of the oils that we were pressing, we were offering for culinary purposes. Right. Um, and that was a big thing that we pushed at the beginning. And so to offer them at the scale that we had started to offer them through grocery stores and these sorts of things, you know, we had to have a commercial facility. So we were renting out this commercial kitchen and we were producing these oils and it was, it, it became a pretty large scale operation. We were pressing and moving a lot of oil. Um, we won an award, we won a good food award um, in San Francisco. Yeah, this is a few years ago. Yeah, and, and it got us a lot of press. It got us a lot of accounts. We were moving so much oil. Um, and then I just realized that, like, how busy I was doing that um, and how much time I was spending doing this one particular activity, which really wasn't my intention. Um, it just kind of became this thing. And although it was financially successful, most certainly, when I had to evaluate my personal needs, I found that um financial success wasn't at the top of my priority list so we rescaled down the whole operation to do something different Um, and i'm so thankful that i did because this quiet time that i have now is the time that i have to to enjoy my tea and to write all of these books um and i wouldn't have had time otherwise you know so it's always important to just constantly you know um evaluate where you're at and how you feel about things because everything changes and we even change as people. So, you know, I think it's important to always take that into account. I think this has also been a blessing, a hidden blessing. I mean, there are a lot of terrible things, but of the COVID and the lockdowns, uh, people have had time and quiet to reevaluate their life because when you're just going, 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 you don't have the time to even entertain the, those thoughts, mm. you know, you don't have time to reflect and, and, and really take a look at, at your life and what, what you're doing. Absolutely. So that brings us back to, you know, the opportunities that we find in our challenges and you're just right. Yeah. So many people are so busy. You might have a little downtime in the car driving home from work or when you're in the shower, maybe or something, but you're going to use that downtime to think about a million other things, you know, because there's so limited time. You know, so it is one of the benefits. I've worked with folks since the pandemic um, that had never had an opportunity to garden before. And some of uh-huh. them were just doing it, you know, uh, on their patio or in containers or whatever, because they had limited space. But the, up until that point, they just didn't have the time. Now that they're doing it, they're going to start making time for it. Even when the world starts to get back to whatever we want to call normal um, and things get busy for folks again, they're going to slice that time out. They're going to save that time because they realize how valuable it is to have that time to yourself to do these things that you enjoy. Uh, it refuels the soul. Yeah. yeah, that's why I do. I think it's good advice to take time, carve out some time every day to yeah. to reflect or just to be be with yourself. You know, and yeah, I think that's why it's important to have self care as as part of the daily routine. <laughs> it's 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 critical. You know, I mean, yeah. you're the only person that's going to be with you for the rest of your life. So you're the person that needs to be taken care of the most, right? And I don't mean that in a selfish way. Obviously, we want to support our families and help our communities and all those things. But we can't do those things to the level that we would like to if we're not taking care of ourselves first. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. This kind of goes into um, like simple living. It's something that you practice in your day-to-day at small house farm. And I'm wondering if you can speak to that a little bit about the idea of simple living. It's a challenge, you know, it's, it's really, it's a, right. It's a mindset. We have to change our perspective to be able to make those physical changes and have them not be terribly uncomfortable. Um, You know, so many times I find 
that I, I used to rush around a lot for work and this and that. And, and it was to, to collect resources, essentially, um, to then expend on things that I maybe did or did not even need. And it was reevaluating my needs and my wants and what the difference between those two things actually is, um, which they are very different things, needs and wants. Uh, but it's easy to get that conflated. Um, I, I find that that's, that's an easy thing. Maybe it's human nature. The things that we really, really want, we start to think that we need them. Yeah. Um, there is also, a, there's a fine line too, and there's shades of gray, you know, between needs and wants. Sometimes, you know, things that we think we really want, we think we really need, we don't necessarily need. But what do we, what do we actually need, you know? <laughs> At the end of the day, we need very few things, right? Um, We need shelter. We need food. We need water. We need love. I think if we're really going to, you know, shave it down, I think it's those four things. Yeah. But we like like to think we need other things. Right. I I think with like business expenses for me, I often will like justify like, well, the business needs us. Like, I don't need it, but like this would make my business operation better or whatever. And then. Well, that's why oh, I yeah. think, yeah. like one of, like a lot of you, you need certain things because you want other things. Right. Like you need to put more hours into this if you want your business to succeed. You know, you need to take away time from this if you want to have more time alone. You know what I mean? Mm. <laughs> sure. You know, and we could do a lot of mental gymnastics, you know, to mm-hmm. convince ourselves of these things. But at the end of the day, we, you know, like you said, we need certain things to then get things that we want. Yeah. But the, the ultimate is those are things that we want. We want right. <laughs> a, a nice house or we want um, avocados. We want a successful right. business. We want these things. And to get these things, then we need to do that. Um, but the precursor to all that is want. And there's nothing wrong with wanting things, yeah. um, you know, but analyzing and evaluating our, our priorities of want um, will help us to see what things can be eliminated what things maybe we're prioritizing that don't serve us as well as that they should um, and to help slicing those things out. You know, when we came to Small House, when we moved here and and founded this farm, um, it was very challenging, in particular that first year, to to kind of have those difficult conversations with ourselves about what is our ultimate goal here and what do we want? Because if I want these things, I have to sacrifice these other things. And some of those things I had grown quite attached to, um, yeah, yeah. to the point where I felt that they were needs, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and so it, it was quite challenging. But again, we'll come back to that idea of just spending time with yourself. When you spend time with yourself quietly, I think that it helps, I don't want to say the reset button, but in a way it helps adjust something um, where you can reevaluate your and see things in a different way you know again our our time on earth is is short and we want to make the most of it and i just see so many people that in a way create stressful situations that they don't need to necessarily have you know yeah other people unfortunately have stressful situations put on them against their will and that's a whole other problem that we have to deal with you know Uh, but for those of us that have the privilege to, to choose these stressful situations, um, maybe we need some reevaluation of that. But that's a systemic thing. That's a big structure of society issue. But the best that we can do as individual people is just to maybe unplug ourselves for a second from whatever, whatever that means to you. You know, you, as soon as I said unplug yourself, you thought of something. Whatever you thought of, that's what you need to unplug from for a minute. Mm-hmm. That's, a, that's great advice. I went to the woods. That's where I went in my brain when I thought. I love that. I'm like, I'm in the woods. <laughs> <laughs> there so is no we, better place to be. Yeah, yeah, I agree. Well, some people live next to the sea, maybe the seashore, yeah, or if you live close. in the desert. But for up here, <laughs> I, I, definitely the woods. For me, that's that's the. Well, you're right. You know, I guess I'm biased for the forest because that's where I've always lived. Yeah. But there are yeah, certainly maybe. beautiful natural places all around, and that should definitely be. Um, the place that we, we choose to go mm. yeah so to go back to the artisan hat herbalist um are there what are some of your 
favorite plant? I mean, this has been a great discussion, but we should maybe talk a little bit more about plants. So what, what, are, what, are, what are some of your favorite plants to work with in the, in the day-to-day life? Well, you know, that's like asking me who my favorite child is. That's, that's a <laughs> difficult question yeah. to answer. Uh, my favorite this time of the year. For this maybe. time of the year, uh, you know, well, just a few weeks ago, a couple weeks ago, I guess, um, we were really getting into goldenrod a lot. We were harvesting a lot of goldenrod. Um, that was the thing that worked. Winter, wintergreen, certainly, we've talked about. Um, witch hazel has been happening a lot. Um, I'm just kind of going through my weeks here thinking about what I've been, been harvesting. Um, yeah. Pine, pine needles, that's coming up next. Um, yeah. You know, I, I've been spending a lot of time recently, well, in the woods looking for mushrooms and things. And oh, yeah. um, the pine trees have really been speaking to me. And, you know, pine trees is, a, is one of the plants that we cover in the Artisan Herbalist. And I think it's just an important one. Here in Michigan, you know, we have, uh, you know, the white pine, red pine, um, you know, and I work with the white pine quite a bit. That's what grows here um, yeah. near my home. Yeah. And as, as this time of the season, as we're preparing ourselves for winter, um, pine is a tree that I'm going to speak more and more of because, you know, as we know, the needles of the pine are very high in vitamin C. It's a very healing medicine. And in the winter time, many of the places that I go to teach are folks that are new to herbalism and they maybe haven't had a chance to gather any herbs yet. Um, so I always encourage them to look to the pine trees because even when the world is covered in snow, the pine tree still stands tall above the snow, easy to get to. And we can harvest mm-hmm. her needles and make a healing tea. You know, that vitamin C is, is something that's very important for our, our health, especially in, during cold and flu season it, during the winter time. Um, so we can make a nice healing tea from the pine needles. I like to add a little garlic to it. Uh, ah. Oh, pine needle garlic tea is just gonna, it's gonna, you know, kick a cold butt for sure. Yeah. It's really good stuff. Mm-hmm. And uh, so that's a tree that's been on my mind a lot lately is, is the pine tree. Yeah. Pine, pine is wonderful. And it's really good to, to introduce a, a new herbalist to somebody who doesn't know that much about plants because it's pretty easy to identify too. And it's in a lot of places, very common. It is. It's easy to identify. It's very common. It's useful. It's a plant that everybody's relatively familiar with um, and likely has access to, you know, with the artisan herbalist, when we chose the plants that we were going to talk about, that was a challenge in and of itself. You know, there's right. 38 mm-hmm. herbs that we cover in depth in the book and to pick the 38 herbs that I wanted to talk about, it took some time for me to make that decision because I'd want to talk about all the plants forever. You know? <laughs> yeah. And that obviously wasn't going to work. So we tried to select herbs that were specific to, to a couple of, they had to check a couple of boxes. And one of them was plants, obviously, that I know and that I work with, that I have a relationship with, that I, I feel comfortable teaching about, um, certainly. But also, I wanted these to be plants that were going to be accessible to as many people as possible, no matter where they were at reading the yeah. book. Um, so we really tried to make it accessible to folks new to herbalism to help you identify the plant. With the photography, we tried to lay the images out in a ways to aid in identification of the plants, to really show the different parts, uh, because we wanted folks to be comfortable with these plants that are likely right in your backyard. They're likely in your garden or they're at the nearby park or wherever they may be. They're close by, they're easy to identify, and they're, they're powerful. They're good for a multitude of different things. So, you know, it was kind of the Venn diagram that we put together. Those were the 38 plants that were in the center. They kind of met all that criteria. Um, and, oh. and that's kind of how it came to be. Yeah. Yeah, I really like how you organize the plants too. You have common plants from the field, park, or forest, and then garden plants and spice rack plants. And so those are like the spice rack, I imagine, are things that, you know, you can get at any grocery store and um, are super Certainly. accessible to anyone. And you kind of forget about those plants because you don't think of them as like some fancy herbal preparation. They're just like cayenne and turmeric powder, but like they're powerful plants. Absolutely right. And so that that was really where we were going with that. The way that we organized the herbs was I wanted to show the three different, you know, three of the you know, most common different ways that herbs are accessible to us um, through our parks and fields and forests, herbs that we can go and forage, 
um, those that were likely growing in our gardens, the cultivated plants, but the ones in the spice rack, you know, those are herbs that we already have. Probably. So many of those, those herbs and spices that we talked about in that section of the book, people probably already have in their home, like you said, and they're using them, you know, in the kitchen and they may not even, well, they may not be using them. They might be a dusty bottle in the back of the shelf. Um, but to just to kind of create that awareness that you already have these powerful herbal allies right at your fingertips, waiting for you in your home. Um, we just have to acknowledge them, you know? And I feel that that's how it is with all of Mother Nature's gifts is that they're all just right at our fingertips, right underneath our feet, everywhere that we go. It's just acknowledging that they exist. So I really, I was really happy about that spice rack part in particular, because I thought that it really made that point to look at, yeah. you already have these plants here. Yeah. You don't even have to go anywhere. Right. Totally. Yeah. I love that. And then I just have one more kind of technical question about the book and it's how did you formulate these recipes? Um, did you have to do, was it kind of recipes you've been using for years? Did you have to do a lot of like experimenting and like testing them? They're all variations of formulas that we've been using for years, you know? Um, so at the beginning of the artisan herbalist, I talk about, uh, the importance of an herbal notebook, taking notes as you work and, and keeping oh, yeah. track of all of your stuff. Um, and so this, these are things from my herbal notebook, the recipes. Those are recipes that I've worked on over the years. Some of them have specific tweaks that are unique to the book um, that we, we, we made specifically for this collection. Uh, but they're all recipes that I've tried and used um, and enjoyed and found beneficial. And um, some of them are, are tweaks of the products that we offer through Small House. There, there are variations of that. Um, so they kind of, they're, or they're organic in a way, in, in meaning that, you know, they've kind of brought themselves to the forefront to be selected for the book for one reason or another. But they're all tried and true formulas um, that I try to set up in a way to help people use it as a, a launch pad. You know, even like the ratios for making a salve or a lotion that we include in the book, those those recipes, um, you know, your waxed oil ratios and that sort of thing. Um, I set that stage as if these are just places to start, you know, and and begin here so you can get some experience. You can try these things, get a feel for it, but then, you know, make it your own. Grow from there. Try new things. Make your own tweaks. And I think that's part of the beauty of being an artist and herbalist is that I could, I could give each person the same ingredients, you know, the same list of herbs, and we could all go back to our apothecaries and craft medicine that means something to us and to our families. And we'd each create something unique, just like the herbalists are unique. The way that we work with our herbs is unique as well. Absolutely. And then that gets into like the bioregional art, artisan herbalism, um, you know, where different people are going to have different oils or different herbs, but there's a lot of uh, crossover. But if you have that ratio, then you can kind of play with that and make little small batches and tweak it. And, you know, exactly. You start with that basic that. formula and just yeah. let it grow. Yeah. It's yeah. really cool. So um, in the last few minutes, I would love to ask you a little bit more about something else that you're also an expert in, which is seed saving. And, um, you have another book called saving our seeds, the practice and philosophy. And so I'm wondering first, what do you see as the importance of saving seeds? Like, why do we, why do we want to do this? Well, we all like to eat food, right? Uh, <laughs> I sure do. I, I, I enjoy it sometimes too much, you know, but <laughs> it, in order to, to have food security, right. We need to have seed security. We, to, to save our seeds ensures a localized food supply, right? Um, everybody's real hot right now about local food and going to the farmer's market and that sort of thing. And that, that just one step away from that is where do these seeds come from? Who's supplying the seeds that grows our local food? In my mind, food is only as local as the seed that it grows from. If we want a localized food system, we need to have a localized seed system. Saving and sharing our seeds amongst our communities is one of the most important things that we can do right? You know, with, with the pandemic, it opened our eyes to so many shortcomings in, in, in our society and in our system. We saw a lot of places where things were perhaps more fragile than we thought that they were. 
right? And we saw a huge run on, on, on things at the grocery store that were suddenly out. Uh, toilet paper, right? That was a big thing. Everybody was out of toilet paper. Well, the exact same thing happened with the seed market. Oh, yeah. There was a run on seeds like never before. We sell seeds at Small House Farm on our website. Just, you know, we're a very small scale operation. All of the seeds that we offer are grown right here on our farm. I process every single package of seeds that you might get from our website, right? And we saw sales like, well, in the first three months of the pandemic, I sold more seeds than I have in the last five years. It it was unbelievable. Um, It was great. I mean, don't get me wrong. Um, it was, it was good for us because most everything else that we were doing for work was shut down. I wasn't teaching or anything at that point. Um, but it was also cool to see so many people suddenly wanting to get seeds. Now, a lot of people may have been coming to that point of view because they were panicked. You know, a lot of people maybe were coming to it because they suddenly had this free time, like we talked about to get out there to the garden, whatever it was that was bringing them to seeds, to, to gardening, to growing their own food and herbs and medicine. That was really, really awesome stuff, you know, but what it highlighted to me was it was just another situation where people were reliant on somebody else supplying them with something that they should be able to do themselves. Right. We do a lot of work with seed libraries. I'm the founder of an organization called Michigan Seed Library Network. We're sort of an umbrella organization that works on educational programming resources for the seed libraries here in Michigan. Michigan is home to 96 seed libraries. Um, Yeah. It's, Pretty, pretty cool, uh, many of which I've personally helped to open. Um, and it's something that I'm very proud of. Yeah, we do a lot of work with that. But even in that point of view, when the pandemic hit, all the libraries got closed. And right. even in those situations, people didn't have access to these seeds. You go to your, your, your favorite seed company's website and they're shut down or things are out of stock, right? The, yeah. It's so important that people learn how to save their own seeds. Yeah. Yeah, I for sure. <laughs> you so, know, like, go ahead. How do you how do you so how do you do it? Like, what are some of the common um, pitfalls that that you see in people starting to save their seeds? Just like anything else, people tend to, you know, take on more than they can handle at one time. So, yeah. like, I was baby stuff. Just start pick one thing, something that you already like to grow, or something that you like to eat. Just pick one thing and learn that particular skill. Um, another place where I see like be more general about where I see shortcomings is people don't, people tend to not understand when seeds are ripe, right? Uh, when is the proper time to harvest seeds from particular species? And, you know, and obviously from one species to the next, um, it, it varies, uh, but I think what that speaks to really is this, this disconnect that people have with their food, right? Um, sometimes we don't even know where our food is coming from let alone the life cycle of the plant that's producing our food, right? So it's kind of just a lack of of awareness. Um, But it's easily remedied through education, right? Saving seeds is a simple, simple thing. People have been saving seeds since the dawn of agriculture, thousands of years. It was the dawn of agriculture in a certain way. Well, exactly right, man. It is not like scholars and scientists and all these people. It was just regular, everyday people, grandmas. Children, everyone was saving seeds because they wanted to eat. Um, it's it's it can be daunting when you've never done something before. It can seem frightening, but it, it's really, in essence, it's one of the most simple things, and 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 everybody can do it. I mean, my children <laughs> save seeds here at the farm. You know, uh, I mean, they've been taught how to do it, sure, but it's it's relatively a simple task. So, I think that those are the two lessons. You know, it's not that hard. Pick something small. Just start with something small. Tomatoes, beans, whatever it is that you like to eat and and just learn that one thing. And that's all that we need to do. Uh, If I learned how to save the seeds from one thing and my neighbor learned how to save the seeds from something else and his neighbor learned how to save the seeds from something else, et cetera, continue down the road. Suddenly our community can save all the seeds that we need for our entire food supply. Yeah. So do you have any tips or do you know how to make sure that uh, we keep the like viability of the seeds? Like, do you have to harvest from multiple plants and like, like how how do you make sure that the seeds stay viable and true to type over many years? 
Well, those are two different things, really. So we'll okay. talk about those differently. So keeping a, a good genetic diversity within your population is important to have nice, viable seeds, right? So you're going to have nice, potent seeds for, for generations to come. So selecting and saving seeds from a number of plants, right? Um, your best performing healthiest, strongest plants. Those are the ones that you want to save your seeds from, obviously, right? The, 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 the healthier the plant that you save the seeds from, the healthier next year's generation is going to be, right? They're performing the best in your microclimate with your growing techniques, et cetera. Yeah. Getting seeds from a multitude of plants is going to ensure great genetic diversity in that population. And we can look to mother nature as an example here. Mother nature doesn't like everything, uh, you know, homogenized, They're all in a box, right? Um, we like that genetic diversity. That's how she ensures the survival from one season to the next. So if we continue to just take seeds off of just one plant, our genetics become bottlenecked, if you will, and they're not going to perform as well in future generations. So I always say just very broadly, we're going to say, because we're going to work with a multitude of species here, but very broadly, let's say, try to save seeds from five to six plants, right? Five to six different plants, pick the best Performing plants, pick the best looking fruits. And those are the ones that you want to save your seeds from. Obviously, there's some differences with, you know, corn's going to be different and that sort of thing. But I'm giving you very broad information here. Five to six plants is going to be good. Now, we can talk about keeping things true to type, which is a whole different thing to talk about. Being true to type just simply means that I can predict reasonably what those seeds are going to produce. For example, I grow uh, Amish paste tomatoes here. Uh, it's a nice open pollinated variety. It's going to come back true to type. I can save the seeds from my tomatoes, plant them again next year, and predict successfully that they're going to grow Amish paste tomatoes, right? And true to type is important in a number of scenarios, but it's not the end-all be-all of, of producing healthy food, right? And I get anxious to talk about varietal purity in such a limited platform as the short time that we have together in this podcast simply because I don't want to scare people away from doing something. Um, yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? When we right. look to mother nature, mother nature is not concerned with varietal purity. Mother nature right. is concerned with the best performing, strongest plants. That's it. Right. Yeah. Um, and that up until just a couple hundred years ago was what we were concerned with as well. Right. Um, if you've ever read the book, Buffalo bird woman's garden, um, it's a book that really just opened my eyes to a lot of things. You know, they sat down with Buffalo Bird Woman. She was a Hadassah native. Um, and they sat down with her and wrote down a number of things that she remembered about her gardening and growing experience before um, you know, the resident schoolhouses. And in the chapter about squash, what I thought was so interesting is that there wasn't a particular variety of squash that her people grew. And it didn't have a particular name or anything. They just grew these squash which were cross-pollinated amongst themselves. And they just selected the best performing, biggest fruits. And that's what they saved their seeds from, right? Ah, they yeah. weren't necessarily interested in varietal purity. They were more interested in food security, right? Right. Mm -hmm. So at the end of the day, if you feel like you want to save the seeds from the right fruits and vegetables that you might buy at the grocery store and try to grow them in your gardens, they may not come back true to type. But 99% of the time, they're going to produce delicious food, right? <laughs> yeah. So let's not lock ourselves into these boxes that limit our imaginations because seed saving is accessible to all people, regardless of any of those limitations that we might invent for ourselves. Amazing. Yeah. Yeah. So different plants are going to require different things. That's why you said maybe you pick one and your neighbor pick one. So would you recommend just like looking up online or in a book, like how that seed wants to be saved, whether it's in the fridge or dried or in paper? I would recommend, obviously, my book, Saving Our Seeds. We'll walk you right. through those things, right? <laughs> um, but, you know, so all seeds are going to want to be cool, dark, and dry once they're stored. Mm -hmm. um, that's the same for, for all things. Um, cool, dark, and dry. So that could look is like um, in an envelope, in a cardboard box, in your closet. It could be as simple as that, right? Um, really, really basic stuff. Now, some of the specifics from one species to the next as far as uh, how they're pollinated or how the seeds are produced or when's the proper time to harvest them when they're ripe, that's where the variables are going to be. But if you're new to seed saving, this is what you want. Self-pollinating annuals. That's the easiest. So they're self-pollinated. So in the simplest form, what we're looking at here, they have perfect flowers, 
hermaphrodites, if you will. They have male and female parts. Or we could use different lingo and say pollen shedding and pollen receptive. Or we could say staminate and pistillate, right? They pollinate themselves and they're annuals. So they live their entire life cycle, flower, fruit, and seed the very first year that you grow them. So we're talking beans, peas, lettuce, tomatoes, peppers. Those are the absolute easiest things to grow and save seeds from successfully. So if you're just getting started, pick one of those. That's all you got to do. Tomatoes, everybody's growing tomatoes. They're very easy to save. Yeah. So in general, like nightshades and legumes. There you go. You got it, man. Okay. Cool. Well, this has been a uh, wonderful conversation, Bevan. So glad to have you on the podcast. This has been so much fun for me. I really appreciate you guys having me on the show. Yeah, I love how much we, how many different areas we got to cover with you. And um, yeah, it's just been super fun for us too. So how can folks get in uh, in contact with you or what is your website and how can folks buy, buy your products and your books? All of those things can take place on our website, smallhousefarm.com. They can purchase our seeds, our books, the herbal products. They can learn more about us. And then on the website, they can connect to us. Uh, through our YouTube channel, our social medias, all that sort of jazz, um, right through smallhousefarm.com. Wonderful. All right. Awesome. Well, thank you again and uh, have a wonderful fall. Thank you guys. Happy growing. Thanks.